Welcome to 5460, the Joe West Podcast. Featuring former Major League Baseball umpire Joe West. For six decades, no one has seen more baseball than Joe West. And now he shares those stories with you every week right here on the Podcast Heat Network. is asking the Reds to leave the field. I guess maybe as a form of security. Well, Joe West is not going back behind the the catcher. So what is he doing? He he wants to throw him out or what? He's not going to back away from confrontation. It's just not in his makeup. Which guy are we talking about back in the way? Well, come to think of it, hey, it's both guys. And they're warning the Atlanta dugout now. A helmet came flying out. Bobby Cox, I don't think, threw the helmet. One of his players did. Bobby's jawing back at Joe West. But somebody's been tossed, and here comes Cox. It was Bobby Cox who threw the helmet out there. Off the umpire, and that's a foul ball. Joe West gets drilled, and he appears none the worse for it. He's a strong man. (laughs) Nice. Now Joe's going to give him some argument because Mark's saying, what do you do? Joe, just get over there and umpire, will you? Just get over there and umpire. That's all. It's 5460, the Joe West Podcast. Here's Joe West and your host, Mike Claiborne. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of 5460, the Joe West Podcast. I'm Mike Claiborne, and with us today, a very special guest, a World Series champion manager, multiple championships in various leagues, but more importantly, a manager of the year on three different occasions. He is a true baseball lifer, and he's with us today. He is Jim Leland. Jim, thank you so much for being with us, sir. Oh, I'm just thrilled to be with you guys. I I really appreciate it. Well, you just you just like coming on here to pick on me. I know why you're here. I appreciate no, I that would, too. <laughs> I would never do that. Listen, I've I've been on record as saying this for many years, and you're always a little bit sensitive about it because you don't want to offend other umpires. But I have said publicly for years that if I was had game seven behind the plate, I'd want Joe West. I mean that sincerely, and I I felt that way for a long, long time. So, uh, no no picking on Joe. It's just uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you guys. Well, Jim, how did you guys first meet? I mean, was it on the field? Uh, were you in the minors? Were you in the majors? When did it all start? Well, we were we were actually in the minors in Lakeland, Florida. I would I would have to say back in the seventies when you Joe. Late yes, 50s, it, early 70s. And, it was uh, it, it was in the 70s, and you were managing in the minor leagues. I, I tell you who else was there was Les Moss and uh, was Stubby there? Yeah. Yep, Stubby Overmeyer. And uh, you had somebody else in Evansville at the time. I forget, but uh, Fred was, Hatfield. Yes, Fred Hatfield was the other one, and I, I remember it like because all you guys. I remember how Detroit set that up. That they were. St- so involved with the teaching part of you guys uh, getting the guys ready to go to the next level that uh, they treated you with respect, even at the low minor leagues. And I, I was really touched by that. And uh, who was the guy, Ed Catalinas? Yes, Ed Catalinas. He was a, he was in charge of the camp. And then there was, uh, was it Hoot Evers? Hoot Evers, yeah. Bill LaJoy was there. Right, right, yeah. But I, mean, I can I can remember Steve Ripley was just he was just a teenager right out of umpire school and that was his first camp too. That year was my first camp. I'd played football in college and Steve had come right out of high school to the umpire school, and it was his first camp. And we're on one of the the fields, you know, where they all back up to the tower. And uh, Steve was working the plate and he's doing okay. And he called somebody out on strikes and the guy threw a fit. I can't remember the ball player's name, but he threw a fit. And uh, the crew chief for the umpires there was a guy named Mike Fitzpatrick. 
yep. who really who really didn't yell at anybody for any reason whatsoever. And uh, and so this guy's he's tearing up the dugout, throwing bats and everything. And I went across the field from first base and started yelling at him. <laughs> and of course, now Fitzy being the crew chief, he's got to come in and take over. So the sure. two of us are yelling at this kid for yelling at Steve Ripley. And uh, everything calmed down. And then when the game's over, you know, we were taking the long walk back to the dorm. And uh, Ed Catalanis got on the loudspeaker and says, everybody meet at the tower, blah, blah, blah. And we could hear him over the loudspeaker screaming at the kids you guys are here to earn a job. The umpires already have one. If there will be any conversation <laughs> with the umpires, it will come from your manager. It will not come from you. And now Steve Ripley's walking like he's on a cloud now. <laughs> he's, he's tickled to death. Yeah, well, Rip, he was a great guy. Rip was there. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of you guys were there. A lot of the umpires that ended up in the big leagues were there from, at one point or another at Tigertown. It seems oh, like yeah. all the big league umpires went to Tigertown. They didn't, but a lot of them did. And, yeah. you know, good guys. And it was, I mean, we were all young guys trying to make our mark, and it was yeah. fun, it, uh, you know. And, and you saw these guys later at the at the major league level, and of course, it's a little more serious up there and everything. But you had some fond memories of those guys, and, and you had some great experiences with them. And you pretty much knew them, at least by the time I got to the big leagues. I knew a lot of the umpires were there, you know. I got along with most of them. I think you, you know, the umpires in a very you know precautious situation. And most I've always said to my players, you know, remember. If we're doing pretty good, we we at least got a home. We got a home place like Detroit. That's our home place. But the umpire is really a stranger everywhere. He doesn't have a home home team, so it, it's a little tougher on the umpires. And uh, you know, I always tried to you know keep that in mind and, and and have some passion for them. You know, they're good guys. They're doing their job just like we are. And as Joe and I have discussed many times, they got families. They're human beings just like we are, and we all make mistakes. I think. Over my career, I, I went into every game I ever managed, and this is the truth, knowing that the umpire was probably going to miss a couple of pitches, whether it be for me or against me. That's just the way it is. I mean, you, you can't call that many pitches and probably get every single one right. I think the, the key was the timing of the call. You know, if it's a game that's 8-1 to one or something, we don't even think about it. But if it's a game that's 1-1 one to one in the late innings, then it, it makes it a little bit different, and I think that's when sometimes – uh, us as managers got carried away, but you're just so involved, you're so competitive, and just as the umpires are. You know, later on in my life, when I retired from managing and working with a commissioner, I'd go to the World Series and the playoff games, and I would actually be in the umpires' rooms before the game. And to see see the tension and the concentration and the pride that they had, uh, it, it gave me a little perspe a different perspective of the umpires. I mean, they were... You know, you could tell they, they were brokenhearted if they ever missed a call in those situations. You, you could tell it. They were really into it. And it kind of, I, I told a lot of managers, I said, you ought to be in that room sometime to see how much those guys really care because they care just as much as we do. Hey, well, Jim. I, could, I can re remember the, the play that Jimmy Joyce had at first base. And as mad as you were that he missed the play, uh, you were probably the best thing that ever happened to him for consoling him after it was over. And he, he talked about that. Uh, he, he still talks about that. He was, uh, he said, uh, you you came in and and helped him through it. It's uh, and it's it, it, you're right. It's hard when they, whenever an umpire misses a play, a little piece of him dies. So you you're right on target there. Yeah, I think so. And Jim, you know, Jim was an outstanding umpire, and uh, you know the crowd was all upset. I was worried about the next night because Jim was going to have home plate. And I was worried how the crowd was going to respond, if it was going to get hostile. So I actually came up with this idea to have Galarraga take the, take the lineup card up to home plate and shake hands with Jim Joyce, and they, they had a conversation. And I, I think it did ease the, the tension a little bit as far as the crowd and everything. And I think Jim always appreciated that. And Galarraga himself appreciated that. But, yeah, it's just one of those freaky plays that happens. And, you know, when you up far as long as you did, Joe, and you managed as long as I did, those things happen. There are conversations then. There will be conversations for a lifetime, but that's just the way things go. Now, now, you guys have been in the game for a long time. Jim, you manage over 3,400 games. Joe's been around forever. And you guys have been on sideways with each other three different times. One of the ejections, Jim and Joe, Jim, you were ejected over the inspection of a baseball? I believe I was. I, I don't remember all the details of that, but uh, – <laughs> 
I, I was injected so many, I injected so many times. I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember all of them, but yeah, I, I believe that's right. <laughs> Joe, do you remember that play? Yeah, I remember. We're in Pittsburgh, and I remember the guy standing next to you was Billy Verdon, who was another manager, <laughs> and you were mad because uh, y'all had y'all had asked us to check the other pitcher. And so when your pitcher came to the mound, I, I checked him, and you, you got mad, and so I threw you out of the game. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's okay. I, was, I got thrown out a few times. Yeah. You know what, Jim, for you as a manager, you, you get thrown out maybe because a guy missed a play, or do you throw you get thrown out more because you're protecting one of your players and you, you're standing up for your team? Which one do you look back in your career where you toss more for? Well, I, I can tell you this. You, you you did want to protect your players, but I really tried to never protect my player if I knew he was wrong. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wouldn't stand for that. I told the players, I'll defend you, but if, if I'm going to defend you, you've got to give me something to go to court with. And if you're wrong and I believe you're wrong, I'm going to tell you you're wrong. And the other thing I didn't do, and I can say this honestly, I never went out and argued with an umpire to try to fire my team up. People think that's a big fallacy for a lot of people, in my opinion. I always felt like if I got to go argue with an umpire to get my team fired up, I'm not doing a very good job of getting them prepared. So I, I never did it really to put on a show or anything. Sometimes you do get animated, which I did several times in my in my career. But you're really not, you know, like I said, if I had to do that to fire my team up, I felt that I was really failing my team. Hey, Joe, tell our listeners what you told me about the all-natural B1 sports performance and wellness patch that's revolutionizing sports nutrition. Fans, there's no more sugary energy drinks or extra caffeine for an energy boost. The B1 patch is fast-acting. It's body heat activated and proudly made here in the United States. It's a must-have if you're out on the golf course or on the go or just patching up your future major leaguers. Feel good about using this 100% all-natural B1 patch from USA National Patches. It's easy to apply, worn by over 200 athletes, and is the official patch of 78 Division I schools. And Mike, I personally used the B1 patch for years, and they've made a a real difference in my life. Visit buyb1.com and enter the code umpire to buy B1 and get one free. I really want you to try these and I want all our listeners to try it. You'll be glad you did. It's the B1 patch. Don't compete without it. That's buyb1.com. Enter the code umpire and buy one and get one free. Well, I got to say, I got to say one thing, you know, you came out to argue with, I think it was Jimmy Joyce in the middle of the seventh inning. And as y'all are screaming at each other, they started playing God, uh, God bless America or something. What was that? <laughs> yeah. And you both stopped arguing and put your hands over your heart. And as soon as the last note hit, you turned around and started yelling again. <laughs> yeah, that was in Yankee Stadium. It wasn't Joyce. I'm trying to think. He's the younger umpire at the time. And he's still, I believe he's still umpiring. Um, yeah, that was kind of uh, people got a big kick out of that, but it's just you know it, it just carried on. I mean, you had to be respectful, obviously, to the flag. So, uh, but afterwards, we had a few more words. But I was already thrown out of the game. He had thrown me out. So, um, you know, there's a lot of great memories and a lot of funny stories and things that happen. And you make a fool of yourself. You know, it doesn't cost anything to make a fool of yourself as a manager. Sometimes you do that. There's no question about it. You. You know, you get carried away, and and probably too 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 much of an extent. But uh, you know, most of it, the the stakes are big for the umpires, and the stakes are big for the players and the managers. And you know, these are our jobs. And you know, you want to defend your players, you want to respect the umpires, you want to understand their side of it. And sometimes, in the heat of the battle, you probably get out of character a little bit. Hey, Jim, for you, um, like umpires, there's, it's a select fraternity. There's only a handful of guys on the planet who've been able to have a lot of car to turn into an umpire, and there's only a few umpires who've been able to accept a lot of car from a manager. As you grew in your career, who were some of the people who helped you become the manager that you were? Well, I think it started way back in Tigertown, like Joe said. I remember the best piece of advice I ever got came from Hoot Evers, was the farm director when I was just a young not nose manager and and who Devers told me I just want to tell you one thing if you ever worry about what you have to answer after the game you'll never be a good manager meaning that you know you're supposed to know more than the press 
So those guys that are asking those questions, you're supposed to know more than they are. So don't ever fringe. Don't ever get upset about what you have to answer the game. Listen to the question. Think about it for 30 seconds and answer it. But if you're going to worry about it, try to protect yourself by saying something maybe that isn't true or you're trying to mislead them a little bit or get them off your back, you'll never be a good manager. I'll never forget that. And then Tony LaRusso was a great help to me. Uh, when Tony brought me to Chicago as the third base coach, I uh, he, he afforded me the privilege of sitting at every one of his press conferences if I chose to do. Now, I didn't go in there every night, but I did go in on some occasions and just listen to how he handled the press, maybe talk about an umpire's call, maybe maybe he had a situation with an umpire that day, uh, you know, different things like that. People, you know, you, you learn a lot by listening. You know, I... I I, I tell my son a good story who is now a good, he's a minor league manager for the White Sox. And one of my favorite stories is, um, you know, just to keep your ears open and keep your mouth shut. And I, I use the example that we were in a seafood place one time and there was this beautiful marlin fish hanging up on the wall. And uh, I said, see that fish up there on the wall, you know? And uh, he said, yeah. And I said, well, if he'd have kept his mouth shut, he wouldn't be on that wall. <laughs> yeah. So just you, know, you, learn. you grew up in a, in a in a great environment because because of guys like Hoot Evers and all that. And I, I remember uh, Les Moss actually got promoted out of your stable of minor league managers. He was the manager at Detroit, uh, and he I think he was in first place when the Reds fired Sparky Anderson, and Sparky went over to to manage uh, Detroit. Yeah. That's and right. then, and you were all in like a, a stepping stone pattern. Um, I mean, I bl I believe you were in line to come up if if Les had faltered and Les left there and went, I think he went to the Astros. But uh, right, but uh, that's when Larusa hired you. I think Sparky made it a point for Larusa to talk to you about going over and coaching third base. I don't know if you knew that. Yes, I think he did. Sparky just didn't have room for me. He had his coaches, which I understand. When I was a manager, I wanted to preferably hire my own coaches, you know, guys that you're comfortable with, guys that you – I always tried to hire coaches that were in their middle-aged coaches that had a lot of minor league experience but could still do a lot of physical work. I wanted guys in that age bracket where they knew a lot because they, they managed 12, 8, 10 years in the minor league, but they could also do physical work such as throwing BP and things of that nature. So that's how I tried to establish my staff. Well, Sparky had his staff. I wasn't going to make it on uh, Sparky's staff, which he told me. You know, he had his guys. So I had managed against Tony for two years. Well, actually one year. He, he only lasted a half year and went to the big leagues. But he was at Des Moines when I was at Evansville. And he remembered me from there. And when he had an opening with Bobby Winkles, who was his third base coach, went to the front office. And he uh, he hired me to coach third base. And, of course, in 83, the White Sox had a big year. We won 98 games, went to the playoffs, got beat by Baltimore. And so I started to get a little exposure, uh, you know, to other teams where they were starting to interview me. And, Eventually, I landed a major league job. Yeah, and and when you landed that major league job, you took the Pittsburgh Pirates, who hadn't hadn't done anything for all those years, and you took them to the playoffs the first year. I no, don't we think... didn't make it the first year, but it took oh, was it the second year. Ago, but I took the Tigers to the playoffs. I had done some, but the Pirates, we turned that thing around, and uh, you know the Mets were a powerhouse at the time. They won the World Series in nineteen eighty six. That was my first year, so we were in that in that division with the Mets. So it took a little bit of time, but uh, we ended up going to the postseason three times, won three straight division titles, and we did get it turned around. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a great opportunity. I remember the Pirates were really bad. They'd lost 100 games. They had had the drug trials in Pittsburgh. There was a lot of negative stuff going on. And somebody asked me, uh, you know, why would you take that job? I said, well, it was the only one I was offered. <laughs> well, you did an excellent job there, and I – I know, uh, I know Barry Bonds had just come up as a big leaguer and, and he was, uh, and it's, I, I saw a quote by you, I think it was yesterday that, uh, maybe the day before about, uh, the selection of the, the Hall of Fame. I know it hurt you that, it, that he wasn't considered any highly than, any more highly than he was because he was a great player. And I, I, I know the issue or the, the shadow of the, the steroid era is, is still hanging over him, but um, I think you were right. He was one of the best players. He's probably the best hitter I ever saw. 
Uh, I mean, you could make a case that Barry Bonds the greatest player to ever play. If you if you really get into the numbers and everything, walk more than Babe Ruth, more home runs. I mean, this guy could could be the, the best player to ever play. And I, I I understand some of the stuff that goes on. And my only problem is, I, I there's no question that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, by the way, are Hall of Famers, uh, two of the greatest their position ever. Uh, I understand the steroid situation. My only problem is. I, I don't like it if you separate. If you have something that says no steroid people involved uh, in the Hall of Fame, that's 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 fine with me. I have no problem with that. But I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not sure everybody in there was any cleaner than Barry Bonds. Not everybody. I'm not mentioning names or accusing anybody. But I think they've opened up a little bit of can of worms when it, when some people got in and Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are not. And, and, you know, Jim, for you, you saw Barry Bonds in his early days where he was winning MVPs before that cloud was over his head. So right. you, you saw him, when, for lack of a better term, when he was truly clean in that stage of his career. Uh, and we don't know whether he was after he left Pittsburgh. I mean, that's still up for debate. But you saw him in the raw natural days. Yeah, I, I saw Barry as a baby. He, he was one of the greatest talents. He's the best player I ever managed. Uh, Larry Walker's in, in the in the conversation, of course, Miguel Cabrera, but Barry Bonds is without question the best player I ever managed. Uh, as a young player, it took him just a little bit of time to make some adjustments, but he did. And uh, I, I'm very close to Barry Bonds. We had the famous uh, shouting match in spring training, but we became very, very close friends. I went out to San Francisco and they retired his number. I think the world of him, I always will. Uh, you know, I don't make decisions for the Hall of Fame. That's none of my business. I don't know whether he'll ever get in. Uh, but, you know, I, uh, there's no question that Barry Bonds is a Hall of Fame baseball player. There's no question about that. Guys, it's time to bring that summer heat back into the bedroom. That's right. Confidence can take you far in life. It can also help you in the bedroom, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in a chewable tablet and at the fraction of a cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead and be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of our licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive a prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online, so no doctor's office visits, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the United States and prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package. They always say first impressions are important. What about lasting impressions? Yeah, it's time to get off the couch and back to work. If your tool needs an upgrade, you need BlueChew.com. Women say there's nothing sexier than confidence. And Blue Chew can help give you confidence where it counts. So if you can benefit from the extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code Joe West at checkout. Just pay $5 for shipping. That's BlueChew.com, promo code Joe West, to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com. For more details and important safety information, and we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. Well, you you put a lot of you put a lot of people in in a position to be successful in your entire career. I mean, you had I think you you had Trammell and Whitaker uh, when they were babies, <laughs> when they were just yeah. kids, right. and you uh, you mentored guys like Steve Kemp. I remember Steve Kemp. And, uh, yeah, I, you actually were around when the bird came up, Mark Fidrich. Right, I managed the bird in the minor leagues. In fact, it was my job to try to get him back to the big leagues. Uh, Whittaker was actually, it's funny you mentioned Lou, Joe, because next week I'm going to Detroit to retire Lou Whittaker's number. Well, I was the manager of Lakeland, Florida in 1976. He was actually player of the year as a third baseman. And they switched him over to second base in the instructional league. So, I'm going up there for that wonderful ceremony coming up, and the uh, channel was in the instructional league. Uh, you know, I, I was first uh, Kirk Gibson's first manager, Dave Roseman, Dan Peachy, Jack Morris, a lot of those guys that were on that world championship team. I had the pleasure of managing those guys in the minor leagues, so uh, I'm very familiar with them. But it was a 
as you said, it was just a great organization with a bunch of good people, good hard-working people. We, uh, we, we never tried to outsmart anybody. We tried to outwork them. And uh, for the most part, it worked out pretty good. Hey, Jim, you, you talked about your minor league career, and I don't know if people really appreciate how important to have managers who can teach at that level. How much have you seen that change? You know, you've been out of the game for a bit, but I know you still find your way around a minor league complex from time to time. How much have you seen that element change, the teaching part, to get these kids ready? Because a lot of people will say a lot of kids who are up here today really aren't ready. Yeah, well, I think that you have so much stuff now uh, going on with all the technology and everything. I, I, I think it's carried away personally. I, I'm a firm believer in the players have to figure some things out themselves. Uh, you have to coach them. There's no question about it. you got to stay after it. But there's so much information that's put in their head nowadays. There's so much modern technology. They're trying all these new things. And I'm not sure it's the best way to develop a player, in my personal opinion. Uh, players do have to figure some things out uh, themselves. And there are managers that haven't managed in the minor leagues. And I don't say that you have to to manage in the big leagues. Aaron Boone's doing a great job never managing in the minor leagues. But I think... It, it, it helps you if you have managed in the minor leagues once you go to manage in the big leagues because you see a lot of things that you've never seen before in the minor leagues. And then when you get to the big leagues, you've seen those things when they happen in the big leagues where a guy that's never managed in the minor leagues has never experienced that. So, uh, you know, the experience of managing the minor league, in my personal opinion, is still the way to go. But there have been some guys that have been very successful and did not take that road. Jim Leland is our guest. It's 5460, the Joe West podcast. I'm Mike Claiborne. Well, hey, Jim, what do you like about the game these days? I mean, there's, there's some good, young, dynamic players, and we still have some great players who are a little older. So what do you like and, and what concerns you, and what do you think about some of the proposed changes down the road? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm for some of the changes. I, I am. I, I, I don't like the game as much as I used to. I think that um, when you when you start talking about the analytical part of the game in today's game, that that's measured over all the games played by all the teams. But you might not, as a manager, you might not be able to win the game on Thursday the way you win the game on Wednesday. You have to be able to do th different things. I like the ball being put in play more, which it's not right now. I, I, I like more action. I like more hit and run. I like a suicide squeeze. Um, I don't. I do not like the shift. When I talked to the commissioner, who I still do some work for, I said, you know, I think we keep asking ourselves the wrong questions. We, we say, do you like the shift? Some people do, some people don't. You say, do the shift works? In a lot of cases, yes, the shift works. But in my opinion, the question we should be asking is, is the shift good for the game of baseball? And in my opinion, it's not. I think when a hitter does his job and hits a line shot to right field, 200 and some feet, a second baseman should not be able to stand out there and catch it. I just, I think you should have both sides, the two guys on both sides of the base. I think it'll create more action. Uh, the other thing was people say, well, their defense for that is, well, the manager ought to have the right to put his players wherever he wants. And I said, well, I don't disagree with that. But at the same time, then, why do you have the three batter rule? Because if, it, if you really want to get technical, then why? Why should I have to face Manny Ramirez and Aaron Judge and leave a left hand and leave a right-handed pitcher in there to face David Ortiz? Why can't I bring the left-handed pitcher in to face David Ortiz? And that takes away from the strategy and integrity of the game. So that 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 argument went out the window with me because you can't do it for some things and not the other. Yeah, the 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 three pitcher rule was I think <clears throat> put in place more to speed up the game, and I don't know that it's really sped up the game. That's right. This. Uh, I, I do I do think this, Jim, over the course of my career, uh, the when I started and when you started in, in the minor leagues and came to the big leagues, I thought the pitchers were more aggressive in going after the hitters. Um, I, I don't believe I ever heard the term uh, go deep in the count, make the pitcher go deep in the count. Of course, when I came up, if you made Tom Seaver go deep in the count after three pitches, you were in the dugout. If you made right. Steve Carlton go deep in the count after right. three or four pitches, you're in the dugout. So right. that that theory, and I I think that we've instilled that to try to make pitchers overwork in the early innings. Right. But uh, I can remember Roger Clemens in the World Series. Uh, he had a hundred pitches in the fifth inning. <clears throat> right. 
And then you had Randy Jones who pitched for the Padres. If he threw 100 pitches, we were in the 11th inning. Yeah, <laughs> so that's right. It's a, it's a big difference. So a lot of it has to do with pitchers throwing strikes. And, um, and I've said this before. I came up just as the big red machine was beginning to dismantle. But if you throw a pitch close to the plate for them, they hit it. They weren't – this deep in the count stuff didn't make any sense to them. They, they were going to hit it. So Yeah. That may- I, I, think, uh, I, I think the big thing with me is I don't like the way the pitching is run today with the pitchers pitching four innings, five innings, and then going all bullpen. I, I think that pitchers are made to pitch. Your best bullpen is a six and two-thirds, seven-inning starter. That's your best bullpen. Trust me when I tell you that. You get a yeah. seven-inning starter, that's your best bullpen. This is ridiculous, in my opinion, when they say a guy threw 100 pitches in five innings, he left the game, uh, his team his team was leading three to two. Oh, he did a great job. He kept his team in the game. That is not a good job. 100 pitches in five innings and giving up three runs, throwing 100 pitches in five innings, that's a good job. That's not a good job. Uh, your good job is when you pitch seven innings, give up one or two runs, you, yeah, you definitely kept your team in the game. But pitchers are supposed to pitch. And I think it's backfired the way we baby him in the minor leagues now. When it comes to the big leagues, you see all these pitching tests with a lot of guys getting hurt. And I think it's because they don't throw pitches in the minor league. If you look back at Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz and those guys' career, David Cohn, uh, Jackson, forget his first name now, slips my mind, Danny Jackson, they all pitched. They all threw a lot of innings and they all threw pitches. And when they come up there, they were horses. But we're taking these kids out now. They throw 75 pitches, get them out, 75 pitches, get them out. And I argue all the time, I've never seen anything documented where if you throw 75 pitches, you're okay, but if you throw 76, you're going to get hurt. That's totally ridiculous. Pitchers you, need to pitch. And, and, you know, to take it one step further, I don't think pitchers know how to pitch out of trouble anymore because they're never around in the sixth inning or the seventh <laughs> inning where they've gone through the order twice and maybe three times. They're not there. And so when they do get into trouble, they don't know what to do other than look to the dugout and hope somebody comes to get them. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any question about it. They say the third time around, and there's just there is some proof that the guy's stuff's not as successful and all this and that. But I'll guarantee you one thing: there were a lot of teams that didn't want to see Tom Seaver the third time around, or Randy <laughs> Johnson the third time around, or Jack Morris the third time around. So I don't buy that totally. There is some proof that there is, you know, the stats go up a little bit, the ERA goes up after five, six innings, whatever, but the third time around. But I'll guarantee you. There was a lot of times I was glad to see him get guys like Jack Morris and Randy Johnson out of the game the third did, time oh, around. Yeah. They were taking him out after two times around the order. I'd have been thrilled. Do you think, yeah. though, it has yeah. a lot to do with the fact that pitchers show everything they have in their closet in the first two innings where the fact that when they get to the third that, that third time around, well, we've already seen what he's got, and we yeah, know what I works think, and we know what doesn't work. I think that's part of it. I also think that. One of the problems with the hitting today in defense, in, de- in defense of the way they do it a little bit is the fact that you're never seeing the same relief pitcher. You're seeing a starter, and then you're seeing three or four different relievers. It's hard to hit that way. And a lot of those relievers in today's game are coming in throwing 9,800 miles an hour, as you and Joe know. So it's not that easy to hit. But I still believe that if you're going to have a good team, starting pitching is the key. And if you have a closer and you got a starter that goes six or seven, you got a closer and you know he's going to pitch the ninth, you're only covering one and two-thirds innings or something with five, six guys. If you can't do that, there's a problem. Joe, you know what? There's a lot of great things about people who drink coffee, but guess what? We found something that will soothe everybody's palate when it comes to having a good cup of coffee. Yeah, this new company that's helping us sponsor this podcast is called Trade Coffee, and they design the coffee to your individual taste. I can remember traveling across the country, doing umpiring all over the country. And the coffee's different everywhere you go. The coffee in Seattle's different than the coffee in Atlanta. And I I think the good thing about this is trade coffee makes your coffee so that you like it. And it's like your choice of how you want it to taste. And, you know, one of the things I notice about trade coffee is the fact that they've tested over 450 roasts. So they know exactly what they can recommend for you. And that's something I don't think anybody else has even thought about. A 450 different tests and B you can have something that fits what you like compared to what you're being poor because somebody else likes it. Look, they've delivered over 5 million bags of fresh coffee 
with more than 750,000 positive reviews. You can't do any better than that. Hey, how about the fact that you just said deliver? Trade coffee can be delivered to you instead of you having to go out and search for it. And I think that really solves a lot of problems for people because in some cities, you may be able to find a certain coffee. In other cities, you can't. But with trade coffee, all you have to do is get it delivered to you and you're set. Right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash Joe West. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. And you can get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash Joe West, and then they'll let Trade Coffee find the coffee that you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash Joe West for $30 off. How about that? Trey Coffee, everybody. You'll love it. Yeah, well, you mentioned another guy's name, Jack Morris, and uh, he was he was coming through the minor leagues as as we were about right. that same time. And uh, he was, like you said, a workhorse. I mean, he didn't have the stuff that Tom Seaver had, but he was going to get you to the ninth inning. Yeah. And there, there's no question about it. And he wasn't afraid of getting hit. Here's yeah. the Here's the pitch, hit it. So that has a lot to do with the the movement of the game and the speed of the game and and uh, keeping the game moving. The, 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 if the ball's being put in play, uh, your fielders have a chance to catch it and throw the guy out. So I think I think we're missing the point here is is these guys are trying to strike too many guys out, which Randy Jones, on the other hand, was trying to get you to hit the first pitch. Right. You know what I mean? So. Uh, I I believe that a lot of our problems are the way we're teaching it to be played. And uh, I, I, agree. I, I don't think, and I, you know, I put some of the blame on the umpires. The umpires should be walking up the baseline of the team coming on the field saying, let's go. It's time to go get out here, you know? Right. And, um, and people always forget there's a commercial time between innings that we have to wait for them to get back from commercial sure. that slows down the game. Right. And uh, when a hitter comes to bat, what does he have to step out for? Get in the box and play. Let's go. Well, uh, I think, I think Joe. I think that I think the biggest culprit are the hitters. I don't think it's the pitcher slowing the game down. I think it's the hitter slowing the game down. If you watch, if you had a ground ball to shortstop, and the, and the guy's on the on deck circle, he should be walking to home plate, but he's not. He's over there fooling around with a donut, trying to get it off his bat. He's waiting for his walk up music. He's standing <laughs> over there waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's the hitters that are slowing the game down. If you really watch it, technically, the hitters are slowing the game down, not the pitchers in most cases. Well, though, that little bit of time adds up between each hitter. You're exactly right. We, I got to blame the New York Mets for that because they, they have treated everything since the middle 80s like it's a Broadway production, and they don't leave the on-deck circle till they play their music. Uh, in fact, we we told the public address announcer one time, don't announce their name till they step in the box, because that's basically when baseball was set up. That's when you were supposed to announce their name is when they stepped in the batter's box, not when they walked to the plate. Right, and, and I uh, think you, you you have to put. I think you have to be very careful because I think Rob's doing a good job, and I think he's trying to he's trying to make it better. There's no question about it. I think one of the keys is you you. you you, you have to put rules in, but you have to enforce the rules or it, it does no good at all. That's right. If, That's if you're exactly just gonna, right. If you're just going to threaten them and put it on the umpire to get them in the batter's box, then, then it puts the pressure on the umpire. Then there's some friction there. Let's just take over as a, as, as a baseball, running it like Rob's doing. I think he's doing a good job with some of these changes he's doing. He's got some good ideas. But let's take it over. And if we have rules that are put into play, make sure the rules are enforced. Or do whatever you have to do. Find people, whatever it may be. But you can't put rules in just to threaten people. You have to put rules in that you're gonna that you're gonna enforce. And if you don't enforce the rules, they just go by the wayside. You're exactly right there. We and we've seen that over the years with with other issues that have come up. Of course, most of them happened before Rob got here. You know, I I remember being in a negotiation with him one time, and we were arguing over uh, if there's a work stoppage. Uh, do you get 90 days pay for the umpires? And I said, no, it's half a year. He said, no, 90 days is half a year. And he said, well, when would this happen? I said, like in 94, when y'all canceled the season. 
<laughs> and of course he said, I, I wasn't here then. <laughs> and I said, well, I was. <laughs> so. well, Jim I Leland. He, I think he's really doing a good job. I think he's got some good ideas. I think he's done, they've done a lot of research on it. And you find out sometimes you think something off the top of your head that they've already thought about, like getting more people to play baseball and things of that nature. Could we get more, could we partner with the NCAA to give more scholarships for baseball so that we get more kids in the United States playing baseball? It's become an expensive sport. This travel baseball has become so expensive, it's ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not against travel baseball, but there's one, families just can't afford that. I went through that with my son. It was a $10,000 summer to play baseball. You know, families just can't do it. We need to uh, create something here in the United States where we have these these leagues going back to Knothole and American Legion and things like that where we get our kids playing more baseball. I think it would be great. And, you know, they, they, they talked about it, but when I said that about the NCAA and, and working with them maybe to get to get something through, they, they had already done that. But then they would have to give more scholarships for every other sport and things of that nature. So they were one step ahead of me. It was just a thought that I had, but they had already thought about that and tried it. So, I mean, they're doing a lot of hard work and trying to figure this thing out and make it better. But we have to, the main thing, we, the problem right now is we have to entertain our young people. We're losing our young fans because they want action. And they're not going to come to the ballpark and sit and watch strikeouts and walks. They're not going to do it. They want too much action. So we got to create a game again that has more action. That's why I like the hit and run, the stolen base, the squeeze, different ways to win a game. I love the home run like everybody else, but that's not the only way to win a game. You think sometimes because they they have numbers that tell you, well, the bunt doesn't help you as much as you think. You think we've been overcome by so many numbers and where people aren't watching the game compared to watching their laptop? I agree 100 percent. I think uh, I, I think, see, I, I look at it a little bit different. Uh, I, I understand about the bunt and all that stuff, but the bunt can be an offensive weapon. And the bunt, you might not use the bunt for five days. I'm not, I'm not saying you should be up there bunting all the time. You might not use that for five, but I will point this out to you. You know what really happens with baseball? All season long, we play the game a certain way, but watch the playoffs. When those good managers get in the playoffs, they bunt, they steal, and they do other things. I watch it year after year after year since I retired. Well, they go back to the original baseball when they get to the postseason. Hey, for you, you, we talked about some of the good hitters you've managed and some pitchers you work with. Who are some of the best defensive players you, you've, you've had a chance to be around? Because if you don't have defense, it's really hard to beat anybody these days. Well, I was really fortunate in Pittsburgh because I had two of the best defensive outfielders I ever saw, Barry Bonds and Andy Van Slyke. Uh, just an absolute terrific, terrific defenders. Uh, uh, Jay Bell was a terrific shortstop for me in Pittsburgh. Chico Lynn was a great second baseman. Had one big error that people remember forever, but ter terrific, terrific. Uh, Placido Polanco, I think he went a year and a half without making an error at second baseman in Detroit. Uh, you're right. Defense is a big part of the pitching and defense. I think it still holds true to this day. I don't think it will ever go away. Um, so I, I was Larry Walker was the most instinctive player probably that I ever managed in my life. He could do everything. Throw, run, hit, hit with power. Great absolutely unbelievable defender. I mean, if you put it, if I, I think about some of my teams sometimes, and if you ever put an outfield together of Walker, Van Slyke, and Bonds, that outfield would match up with any any defensive outfield in the history of baseball. Well, you had another guy in Pittsburgh when you first got there that was the right fielder. Uh, I think he came over from the Phillies. I'm trying to remember his name. Glenn he Wilson? Had a, he had a great throwing arm. Yeah, yes. Glenn Wilson. Yeah, he and yeah, yeah so Glenn, he, Willie Wilson, yeah, Glenn Wilson, yeah, yeah. He he, you had a great outfield when yeah. Bonds played there. So, and uh, and it was it was awesome to watch. Uh, yeah, and then you, you people forget you had Bobby Bonilla. Yep. And, um, Bobby uh, played third and right field, you know, and he wasn't as good a defender as those guys were, but he was still a, 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 obviously a solid player, more for his bat. But uh, you know. Had a little Spanky Laval, you're one of Gold Glove's catcher. Uh, you know, we. I mean, I've had some. I've been blessed to have made some great, great players yeah. over my time, and some great pitchers as well. So, uh, you know, it's fun to watch those guys. I, I always remark, it's even fun to watch the opponent. To be honest with you, I mean, you're trying to beat them, obviously, but it's still a thrill, and it's fun to watch Tony Gwynn hit, Rod Carew hit, 
I mean, even when you're the opposing manager, it's fun to watch those guys, and you marvel at just how good they are. You watch Derek Jeter, how he did everything every day for the Yankees. You know, it was just it's very interesting and very rewarding, really, to watch those great players. You brought up Spanky's name. He was uh, – I remember when he first came up, and he came out to warm up the pitcher. <laughs> And in throwing the ball back to the pitcher before he left, he kicked dirt on the plate. And I started yelling at him, who the hell are you to come up here and kick dirt on the plate? You're not even in the damn game. And I'm screaming at him. He went, he went back to the dugout and said, who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> and I used to I used to have this thing. I, I did it until I quit umpiring. Just the hitter come to the plate, and if he didn't say hello, I'd jump right down his throat. And I'd say – you know, I don't know where you played last year. I don't know where you played last month. But you come to the home plate the first time you're up, you say hello to everybody up here. Now, after that, you can call me anything you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you had a rookie player. I forget who it was. And uh, and you sent him back the next time. I said, tell him what I said. You you said, Jimmy said to call you this. <laughs> 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 but I used to do that. With, I don't care who they were. I don't care if they were Albert Pujols or, or Barry yeah, Bonds. Yeah. If they didn't say hello the first yeah. time, I'd jump right in their kitchen. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by CarShield, who makes it easy and affordable to protect my car from expensive repairs. And that's just for starters. CarShield is the number one auto protection company in the U.S. and offers protection plans for around 100 bucks a month. The plans cover more parts than ever before, whether your car has 5,000 miles or 150,000 miles. Let me tell you how simple it is to get your car fixed. When you need a repair, you choose the mechanic, and CarShield's administrators handle all the rest. That's it. You don't have to deal with the paperwork or the headaches. You're taken care of. The same goes if your car breaks down and you're stuck on the side of the road. Plans through CarShield also include coast-to-coast -coast roadside assistance. CarShield administrators are there for you with rental car options and trip reimbursement at no extra cost. Get coverage today and you'll lock up your price now and it will never go up. That means as long as you own your car, no matter how old it is, you're protected from the rising cost of parts and repairs for your vehicle. CarShield helps protect my wallet from expensive car repairs and they'll do the same for you. Go to carshield.com slash podcast to start your plan and lock in your pricing forever. That's carshield.com slash podcast. A deductible may apply. Hey, Jim, the World Series you won with Miami. What, what was that like? Because that was a collection of players. You had some young players that were coming up as well. Uh, and, and it seemed like you were the right guy for that position. Well, I, I was very fortunate. Dave Dombrowski took me down there and went out. We signed a few players. Uh, it was a very good team. There's no question about it. It was a, a, We were the best team in baseball that year. We we had a good year against the Braves during the regular season. I think we beat them 12 out of 18. We faced them again in the postseason. Of course, they were the measuring stick for the National League. Uh, you know, so it, it was. it really was a great team. And we ran into a a great offensive team in Cleveland in the World Series. It was one of the best offensive clubs I've ever seen. We felt like going into that series that we could score uh, against their pitching, but we knew it was going to be a big chore to shut them down. As it turned out, there was a couple high-scoring games, a couple real low-scoring games. Uh, game seven ends up three to two. The home team wins it on a base hit with the bases loaded after midnight. Um, you know, I've always had a little sore spot about that because – I truly believe uh, the Florida Marlins beat the Cleveland Indians 3-2 to two in 11 innings in Game 7 of the World Series. And I truly believe if that game had been between the Yankees and the Dodgers, it might have gone down as one of the top four or five uh, World Series games of all time. But because it was Cleveland and the Marlins, it really didn't get the prestige it deserved. Not that we're looking for prestige, but if that had been the Mets against the Yankees or the Mets uh, you know, against the Dodgers, Yankees against the Dodgers, I think that that uh, that game would have got more credit. That was one of the greatest baseball games ever played. I mean, it was three to two, so the pitching was very good, defense was good. Tony Fernandez made a costly error, but that was just one of the best baseball games I've ever been involved in, along with the one we lost in Minnesota, Game One Sixty Three in two thousand nine, I believe it was, 
was two of the greatest ball games I've ever been involved in. What about that game, game in Atlanta? Mike, Mike, let me let me go over that game uh that game seven. Because in the first inning of that game seven that Jim managed there in uh, in Miami, uh Gary Sheffield slid out of the baseline to take out Omar Vizquel in the first end of a double play that would have scored a run in the first inning. And the second base umpire called interference and took the run off the board. And Jim came out to argue with the second base umpire. I know this because it was me. (laughs) 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 He he started to say something. I showed him where Sheffield slid, and he turned right around and went back to the dugout now. (laughs) And And I was living in Fort Lauderdale at the time, and I can remember all these people yelling to me, and I looked up, and I'm thinking, these people could burn down my house. <laughs> <laughs> but that happened in the very first inning of that game. Right. And the right field umpire walked down between innings and he says, you, you're nuts. He says, we got umpires in the American League wouldn't wouldn't call that in the spring training game. You called it in the World Series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Jim, as we wrap up with you, a uh, couple questions for you. Um, you. You're at this game. I know you still love it. You, you do some work for the commissioner. But but there are a lot of young managers out here today that are trying to learn learn this business. And the business has changed a great deal. What What's the one bit of advice you'd give young people who want to get into this game of baseball? Well, I, I would tell them to just be yourself. You know, you, you don't work smart. Uh, you you got to work smart as well as working hard. You can't have one without the other. Uh, I, I think you have to be your own man. Uh, the game's a little bit different than when I broke in because you have all the analytics and everything. You certainly have to accept some of that and learn some of that to the best of your ability so it makes you a little more well-rounded. Uh, I would say the same thing that Hootie was told me. You get your chance. Don't ever worry about what you have to answer after the game. Uh, you should know the game better than the, the people that are asking those questions. And if you don't, you probably shouldn't be the manager. So... You know, it's hard. It's hard to get an opportunity anymore today. Uh, sometimes, you know, you feel bad for guys. Uh, guys have been in the minor leagues 13, 14 years managing, and then somebody gets named that major league managers never managed a day. you got to fight through all that, and if, you're, if you love the game that much, you got to stick with it and uh, give yourself every opportunity, you know. But I think it's, uh, it's still a great game. It's the greatest game for me. I, I, I still feel the same way about it. I still work for the Tigers. I'm going up to see Lou Whitaker retired the number next week. It's, uh, you know, but you got to put your heart and soul in it. And it's pretty, you know, I spent 18 years in the minor leagues before I got one day in the big leagues. So I rode a lot of buses. Wow. And I don't think people are going to pay that price anymore because, you know, with families and get married and have kids, it, it's, it's pretty tough to do that. So I don't know that stuff like that's ever going to happen again. But, you know, give it your best shot. Be yourself. Give your opinion. Be honest. Don't be, don't get intimidated. And uh, hopefully things work out for the best. Joe, I got to tell you, it's great to have the workout anytime on board 5460 as one of our sponsors. Many of our listeners already know that workout anytime as their hometown club where they can work out on their schedule 24-7. Others might be aware that workout anytime is a great business opportunity as well. That's right, Mike. Workout Anytime is one of the top 200 fastest growing franchises in the country. And they've been at this for more than 20 years. And they're currently in 22 different states. And they're internationally in Honduras and Costa Rica. How about that? You know what? Opening up a gym is becoming a real big part. How about $30 billion in health and fitness industry is what you're talking about this year. Never has it been any easier to invest in Workout Anytime franchise. Joe, you know you and I or one in five American adults that have a fitness membership? Yeah, I did know that. As a matter of fact, and I'm told that number is expected to nearly double in the next 10 years. I know these folks that work out anytime, and I have known them for a long time. They're so passionate about the industry, and their franchises rave about the support that they give the company. Well, here's a great business tip. Go to WorkoutAnytimeFranchise.com and learn more. And while you're there, you can see the map of available locations and find out how you can arrange an initial phone conversation to hear more about the proven Workout Anytime business model. That's WorkoutAnytimeFranchise.com. 
All right. You know, now Jimmy, you, Jimmy now you made me bring up another question, Joe. And, and 18 years on bus rides, how many times as you sitting, being the skipper, sitting in that front seat, did you have to think about turning around because of what was going on behind you? Well, uh, I went back <laughs> a few times, but not, not very often. The guys, you know, I found out over the years, players players were the same whether they made 6000 or $60 million. That's the way. I, if you were a good guy, you were a good guy. If you were a jerk, you were a jerk. Whether you made six thousand or six million, if you were a good guy, you were a good guy. Whether you made that, I mean, does it give you some more luxuries in your life, a nicer house or a nicer car? I'm sure it does, but it doesn't really. It really hasn't changed the person of those guys. These ball players are like umpires, and believe it or not, even managers, for the most part, we're pretty good people and hardworking people, and we try to do the best job we can. So. I, I never had too much problem with players. I, I, I love the players. I managed 33 years counting the minor leagues. I could count on one hand the players I didn't care for. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story here because uh, you had a third base coach with, uh, with the Pirates named Rich Donnelly. And uh, I had Rich as, when he was a minor league manager with the Rangers. Right. And I don't know how it changed where he started man, uh, coaching third base for you. But he walked over to me one day and he says, you know, I was really a red ass when I was in the, in the minor leagues. I said, yeah, so was I. He said, it took me a, a couple of years up here in the big leagues to realize that you guys were trying just, to, just as hard to get here as we were. Right. <laughs> and it was like a light come on. You know, you, you think about this, everybody down there taking those bus rides and we had those all night car rides from, Knoxville to Savannah or, right. or Asheville to, to Orlando. We had, we had trips like that and there was just two of us in the car, you know, and, and it was crazy. You, you, right. uh, uh, you, your only, your only support was the guy you were working with. And, uh, and, and Rich was right. We, we worked our tails off to try to get there. And that was, yeah. that was the big thing. And, and then when you got there, it was, you felt like you'd won the lottery and you still weren't making a lot of money. But, you know, we weren't, we weren't like the ball players, but we felt like we'd won the lottery. And, uh, Absolutely. So, hey, we, Jim, I was just going to say, Jim, we thank you so much for being part of 5460, the Joe West podcast and uh, the, the great stories. And more importantly, we appreciate what you've meant to the game and, and so many lives that you've touched over the course of your career. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate Joe's career, and congratulations on the record he set. Uh, we had a lot of great moments together and a lot of great competition, and, and I thank you, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on here today, and God bless both of you. He's Jim Leland. I'm Mike Claiborne, and that's Joe West. We thank everybody for tuning in. Another edition of 5460. We'll look forward to talking to you down the road right here. My baby took me to the ballpark to see a baseball game Lord, it had to be at least 99 in the shade I was stealing a glance at some tight short pants Just as I turned my head My baby grabbed me by the arm and this is what she said If you cheat on me, you'll be out at home if I catch you playing the field, you're gonna be long gone You better play it safe and don't do me wrong Cause if you cheat on me, you'll be out at home You've been listening to 5460, the Joe West Podcast, here on the Podcast Heat Network. Make sure to subscribe and don't miss an episode each and every Monday. We'll talk to you next week. She's checking all the signs while I'm enjoying two of the great American pastimes It's fouling up my nerve watching all these curves Remembering what she said to me And if I get caught looking it's gonna be strike three If you cheat on me, you'll be out at home If I catch you playing the field you're gonna be long gone You better play it safe don't do me wrong Cause if you cheat on me Well you'll be out at home If you cheat on me You'll be out at home 
If I catch you playing the field, you're gonna be long gone. You better play it safe and don't do me wrong. Cause if you cheat on me, well, you'll be out at home. If you cheat on me, you'll be out at home.